Now, it's hard for us because um, the, us in our uh, modern Western culture have a hard time even having categories for what the Sabbath is or how seriously it was taken, right? For us, like, our categories that we have are Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby. Like, that's, that's how we can understand and grasp, oh, yeah, you just don't work. You can't get uh, any Polynesian sauce, or you can't go and get all of your frames for 40% off. Like, that's, that's our understanding of what the Sabbath is. But it was much different for people in the first century, particularly in Judaism. And so I want to take a real quick, a quick run through the Old Testament and see why it is that they took this so seriously. Now that day was on the Sabbath. We see in Genesis 2, right at the very beginning of the Bible, Jesus has created uh, everything that we see in six days. And then in Genesis 2, verses 2 through 3, it says, On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his Polynesian, from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So this is the very roots of the Sabbath. It begins not as a man-made institution but as a God-given command. God says, I rested from my works. On six days I created, seventh day I rested. That's the rhythm that he begins to then impose to his people. But have you ever wondered, isn't it strange, why would God rest? Was he tired? Right? Was it the sixth day he created man and did a couple burpees and CrossFit, and now he needs to just take a break? He's let his body recover? No, if God is truly who he says to be, he doesn't need rest. He wasn't tired. He didn't need to just hang out and catch his breath. He didn't need to recuperate and put some protein in his body. No, there must have been some other purpose. And so we begin to see as it folds out, and we'll get to it more and more, but we see, okay, he rested because then he would take that foundation, his example, and tell his people to do the same. So Johnny read earlier from Exodus 31, uh, this giving of the command from God to tell the people of Israel to keep the Sabbath. And did you hear how serious God was about it? Rest from your work. Anyone who works on that day shall be cut off from the people of God, and they shall be put to death. God took it deathly serious in the Old Testament. He said six days, in verse 15 of Exodus 31, he said six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. He took it very seriously. And so we see this example given in creation, now given to the people, and say, you do the same thing that I did, and if you break it, then you will be cut off and you will be killed. So they took it very seriously. So then what began to happen from that point up to the first century, people began to go, okay, if this is how seriously God takes it, then we need to really protect this day. We need to come around and and kind of help them out some. Let's let's add some other regulations onto there just to make sure nobody's breaking this commandment. And slowly, man started to add on other things that they considered work. Other things that couldn't be done on the Sabbath. And they started to add to God's law in an effort to try to protect the day, but in essence, removing and thinking that they somehow saw better than God did what needed to be done. So by the time the first century comes around, these people had added tons of things around the Sabbath. Um, We we see in verse 10 that this was the issue that these people had of uh, John 5. That day was on the Sabbath. And when the Jews said to the man who had been healed, now when John uses that word Jews, he's just using it as a shorthand for Jewish leaders. So when the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, 
and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. They're saying this was one of the rules that we've added on here. It's not in the Old Testament. We just want to make sure, listen, this is, this is one thing we consider work. You can't carry your bed around. And you see, they, they had this deathly serious view of the Sabbath, and they said, we, this is one of the things that we've considered work. You can't do it. Now, some of my other, I want to I run through real quick some of my other favorite laws that were added that were considered work on the Sabbath. These weren't in the Old Testament. These were added by uh, some of the Jewish leaders. Um, so we see there were over 39 series of laws that they added to them. One of them, uh, it was uh, forbidden to look in the mirror on the Sabbath. Why? Because you may see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out. And that would be work. Can't do that. Uh, you also couldn't wear false teeth because they fell out. You couldn't pick them up. Uh, that would be considered work. So um, awesome. Thanks, Israel. Um, you couldn't carry a handkerchief on uh, the Sabbath, but you could wear one. So if you were upstairs and wanted to take a handkerchief downstairs, you couldn't carry it. So you'd have to put it on, tie it around your neck, walk downstairs, then untie it and give it to whoever you wanted to bring it. Uh, Traveling was also forbidden on the Sabbath. Uh, You could walk up to 1,000 yards from your street. Um, Beyond that was considered traveling and it was considered work. But if you needed to go a little bit longer, you could take a rope up to 1,000 yards, tie it to the end of your street, and extend your street and walk further if you would like. Um, great, great way to get around some of the rules that you and yourself were creating. But probably my favorite, um, you, could, you could, this was allowed, you could spit on the Sabbath. But if you spit in the dirt and your foot scuffed it, well, then you'd be cultivating the soil, and that would be considered work. So you could spit, just, just be careful where you stepped afterwards. And so you see, they were, they were taking this and taking it to these extreme levels, so much so that what they were saying is that your spirituality could be defined by where you spit. And so you see what these people had taken. Okay, here's a command from God, but they've taken it and twisted it. They begin to make this list and try to adhere to it and cast it out on other people and say, here's what we've said is or is not work, and this is what you must do. And listen, the best re- religious people in that day were expert list keepers. The only thing they were better at, at keeping the list that they made was giving it to other people. They would keep the list, and then they would give it to others and say, this is what you need to do. Here are the things that we consider religious and godly. And the problem was that they were adding to what God had said. So if you take what God had said, here's the list and commands that he gives, and give that to others, then praise God, that is good and godly. But when you begin to add to that things that God hasn't said, and you begin to then push that and impose that on other people, friends, that's religion and that's legalism. And it's the the fear not just in the first century, it's what we love to do in the church today as well. We like to take things that God doesn't explicitly say in his word and say, no, no, this is, this is what Christianity looks like. And if you don't check these boxes, then friends, you are not a Christian. If you don't vote this way, then you're not a Christian. If you don't drink or eat these things, then you're not a Christian. If you don't dress this way, if you don't listen to this kind of music, if your radio station has more presets than K-Love, then you are not a Christian. And we take these things and we begin to push them on others and say, this is the list that we've made and you need to do them. We, we are no different from the Jews. We do the same thing today. And friend, if your version of Christianity is boiled down to a set of rules to follow, then you've missed the whole reason why Jesus came in the first place. 
He came to set us free from trying to earn anything on our own because he knew that by works of the law, by anything on our own, we could never save ourselves. And so he came to do it perfectly and die in our place. He didn't come to make bad people better. Friends, he came to make dead people alive. That's why he came. And so let us make sure we're not falling into the same type of religiosity that the Pharisees did to say, okay, here are the lists that we do, and here's what we need to make sure everyone else does. And whenever someone comes in front of us and they've been unable to walk for 38 years and suddenly now they are walking, carrying their mat, that we don't get caught up in what they're wearing or what day it is or what they look like, but we'd be able to praise God for his grace, his mercy, and his compassion. And so that's what we see as they tell this man in verse 10, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Look at the man's response in verse 11. The man responded. He answered them and said, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So do you hear his response? I love, I love this. This guy's like, listen, it, it may or may not be lawful. I don't really know. But here's what I do know. For the last 38 years, I couldn't walk. And now I can because of this guy. And he told me to do this, so I'm going to do it, period. There's no real justification. He's not trying to get into like, okay, what was the original language that Jesus was speaking to me and see what was his true meaning? Let me make sure and see all the lexical different definitions to make sure, okay, what precisely does he mean by this? He just says, no, this is what Jesus told me to do. This man who healed me, so I'm just going to do it. It's just simple obedience. Friends, how many, how many of us, try to justify away God's commands to us. We try to rationalize it, either with our lives, we're just too busy, or I, I can't get into these different things, or, or no, surely he's not telling me to do that. That would be ridiculous, whatever it may be. And for some of us, we may even say, well, I don't even really know what God's telling me to do. How, how am I supposed to know what it is that he is now commanding me to do? And maybe that's the place where we start. Maybe we just say, step one, let's begin to just do what he told us and open up his word. And begin to start seeing what has he done for us and how is he calling us to live? What, what is he saying to us? So he may not be saying, get up, take up your bed and walk. But what are his commands to us? And maybe beginning, that's where we start. We just say, man, I need to just start reading my Bible. I need to see who God is and what he's actually said because I, I really don't even know what his commands are. And then as we begin to pour ourselves into this word, and we see the standard which God has told us to live, that we'd be the same as this man and go, listen, I know for the majority of my life, I was an enemy of God running to hell. And he came and he rescued me. And he saved me, not just from 38 years of being able, unable to walk, but for an eternity of separation from him. Therefore, I'm gonna do whatever he tells me. What a beautiful picture of what obedience looks like. But look at how the the Jewish leaders respond to him. In verse 12, they ask then, well, who is this man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? So again, even as they hear, okay, this man was healed miraculously, they're still caught up with the fact that it's on the Sabbath. So okay, you're picking up your bed and you're walking, fine. Someone told, healed you and told you to do this. Okay, great, but who told you? We need to find out. We need to stop this man from going around and telling people to work on the Sabbath. Their minds are far from the fact that this man has been miraculously healed. They're so caught up with their lists 
in their religion that they failed to see the grace and the mercy and the power of God standing right in front of them. They let one day overshadow 38 years. They were so concerned with their list that they couldn't see the power of God standing right in front of them. May that never be said of us. But then we see later that it was uh, the man had no idea who it was because Jesus had withdrawn from him in verse 13 before he had a chance to tell him who he was. In verse 14, Jesus then came and found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, it's an interesting phrase, and some people will take that out and go, okay, well, what Jesus is saying is that he healed him from this sickness, and now he's saying if you go and you sin, just make sure you don't continue to sin because then something worse than the sickness will happen to you. Maybe you will have a worse sickness, or someone around you will die, or you'll lose money. That's what some people will take that to mean. Friends, it's not at all what it means. What Jesus is saying is, is, is he is saying, go and sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. What he means is nothing in this world. He's saying, go and don't sin anymore. Don't turn your back from me because if you do, if you begin to run after sin and run away from me, then something far worse will happen to you than not being able to walk for 38 years. Something far worse. And you will be separated from me and you will have to stand in front of God and account for your sins. And that wrath for your sins will be poured out on you. And that is far worse than the 38 years that you've experienced. But if you will come and turn to me, I will stand in your place and take your punishment for you. So go, sin no more. And we see here, this is one of the, uh, a, quick, uh, a quick aside here. This is one of the things that people have an issue with is, is the great question of, okay, if Jesus and God, are, are, if they're so powerful and they're so compassionate, why is there so much sickness and pain and hurt in the world today? Why doesn't he just go and heal it all? And friends, that's a hard question. And it's one we can't fully answer in the 30 seconds that I'm about to give to it. But we do see a glimpse of why here in this verse. We see Jesus come in the midst of a huge crowd of people who wanted to be healed and were desperate. And he goes and he finds one man and heals him and then withdraws. But why? Why did he do that? Well, we see that his purpose in healing wasn't just in health. He didn't just come to heal people, but he came in verse 14 so that those who were healed would sin no more. And we see here what was on the forefront of Jesus' mind was, yes, he was coming and giving these pockets of the kingdom of God as he came. And he began to say, look what I can do. Look at how I can reverse this curse. The curse which fell upon the world has nowhere left to hide from me. I can stand above it, and in a word, I can reverse it. And friends, if you believe in me, one day, everything that you're seeing will be true for all of eternity. This is what I can bring. But right now, that's not why I'm coming this first time. I'm not primarily coming to heal everyone. My primary purpose is to deal with sin. That's why I've come, because that is the root problem of it all. Apart from that, then these things would never be here. So I've got to come and cut the root first. And then when I come again, then I'll deal with everything else. But right now, I've come to deal with sin. So this is why he comes, why he comes to the one and heals him there. It's why there's still pain in this world, because there is, in some way, God is working and standing above it all. And he's saying, I'm working every single thing out, for your good and for my glory, Romans eight twenty eight, everything, all things. There's not one thing that falls apart from that. God is saying every single thing in this world is working for your good and for my glory. Now, how we define good is another question. But we see in verse 29 of Romans 8 that how God defines good. 
He says, I'm working the things together so that you would become more in the image of my son. So God is saying everything in this world, if you are a Christian, if you're in Christ, everything in your life, pleasure and pain, is being used to sculpt you into the image of my son. And friends, that is our good. It hurts here, but it won't hurt forever. And it's the hope that we have. And so that's why Jesus comes this first time to deal with sin, to begin to shape people into his image, to begin to lay out this kind of trailer, these teasers, these previews of what life would look like for eternity. And when he comes again, then he will judge sin once and for all and he will usher in this new age, this new city where there is no more pain and no more sickness, no more cancer, no more heart attacks, but only worship forever. And so this is what we see here in this message, but the, the Jewish leaders here are still hung up. They're not seeing it. They've taken the Sabbath and they've twisted it. Right? And so this is what they do. In, in verses 15 and 16, we see then this man has met Jesus again who was healed and he went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So this, go, this man goes and he tells the Jewish leaders who this was that healed him. And this was the beginning of their dislike for Jesus. It originated here. And it begins to ramp up throughout the rest of the book dramatically. But why? Right, why? Okay, if this was their understanding of the Sabbath, why would they look so uh, disdainfully towards Jesus? Because he's healing people. It's not like he's going and spitting everywhere and kicking his feet in it. Like he's not, he's not going and work. Like he's, he's healing people. Why are they so caught up? Well, um, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he was a, a minister at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for uh, 33 years from 1927 until his death in 1960. He put it this way. He said, well, why all this viciousness? Why this desire to destroy the meek and lowly Jesus? Why this murderous attempt to do away with God? Well, the answer is here in the Sabbath question. They wanted rules, and they did not want God's grace. They wanted human merit. They did not want the simplicity of divine pardon. They wanted to do something for themselves. They wanted to say, okay, here's our list, and if I can keep it, then I can get back into good graces with God. And here comes this man that begins to turn their list upside down and say, no, it's not by your effort, but it's through the grace of God. If you believe in me, you won't have to work. And they were furious at this man who was turning their system upside down. They were so, so angry. And they missed, they had missed, because of their list, they missed the whole message of what the Sabbath was. Right, the whole message of the Sabbath was simply this. Stop laboring, earning, and striving and rest from your work. For six days, work. But on the seventh, stop it. Stop laboring and rest from your works. Right? We see this in Genesis 2. God rested from all his work. We see it in Exodus 31. The seventh day of Sabbath is a solemn rest. This was the message, and this was the spirit of the law, but they got so caught up in the letter of the law that they missed this central message because if they had, they would have seen who was walking in front of them. But instead, they were so angry at this man. Who was this guy who's going around telling people to seemingly work on the sacred and holy day? Well, it was no ordinary man. It was the God-man. 
And this is what we see finally in Jesus' response in verses 16 and 17. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Um, and Jesus answered them then in response to this persecution. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. And what a strange, it's an interesting statement. But what Jesus is, is saying here is he says, no, listen, guys, you, you, you know this. Yes, God rested from his work on the seventh day. But on every Sabbath since then, God is working in his providence and his sovereignty over all his creation, he still causes the sun to rise and the wind to blow and the grass to spring up. If he stopped and rested from his work, this world falls apart. So my father was working until now, and I too am also working. I am stepping in to this divine role. I'm actually being, I'm able to stand above the Sabbath and do things not considered work, not breaking the Sabbath, but I'm working in the same way that my father is working. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Jews understood what he was claiming here. He knew exactly what he was saying. We see in verse 18, this, because Jesus had said that, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more now to kill him. No longer just persecute him. They now were beginning to want to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And this is what we, we see in some modern cults and religions today is they will, they will make the claim, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He was just a man. Uh, whether it be in Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, whatever it may be. So no, Jesus was a man. He never even claimed to be God. Well, that's not what we see Jesus saying here. It's not what the people around Jesus saw him saying. They understood very clearly that Jesus was saying, hey, listen, my father is doing this. I'm doing the same thing. I and the father are one. He was making himself equal with God. And this was the issue here, but they were still missing it. He wasn't a blasphemous man breaking the Sabbath. He was the divine man who had come to fulfill it. But they couldn't see it, right? The, the Sabbath had a different function than what they understood. And if they had understood rightly, then they could have seen what was standing in front of them, right? It's like a shadow, all right, think about a shadow. There's like five, let's see, let's, oh, this will be good. I think, yeah, look, there's a shadow right there, okay. So, what a shadow is, is it is, um, it is a representation of another object. Uh, it, it is uh, an object where light is cast on it, light is then obstructed, and the shadow is created. And that shadow is nothing in and of itself. It only exists because of my hand. Right, my hand pops up, and the shadow f- comes up. So that shadow um, exists because my hand does. There's nothing actually substantive within a shadow itself. But it is pointing forward to something else that creates its substance. It is a representation of its true and full reality. And we see that uh, this is in the same way what the Sabbath is doing. The, the Sabbath is actually a shadow, like many things in the Old Testament. They are shadows that are pointing forward, not in and of themselves, the true reality, but they are pointing forward to their true and full realities, to their substance. And so we see Paul make this same claim in Colossians 2. Verse 16, he says, Therefore, he's writing to the church in Colossae, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And so see, Paul's lumping this here in it. He's saying, don't let anyone pass judgment on you because of a Sabbath. Why? Because, verse 17, these things, including the Sabbath, they're a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Paul is saying all of these things, including the Sabbath, they were pointing forward to Jesus. But you guys missed it because you were so busy making lists. Think back. 
Think back, God, Jewish leaders, people of Israel, everyone in the first century, remember what is the message of the Sabbath. Stop laboring and earning and striving and rest from your works. Well, finally, now here is this man who has come and is going to live a life of perfection perfectly in regard to the law and have true righteousness. And if we believe in him, then that righteousness, that perfection is given to us and we're justified not by works of the law, but by faith, by believing in him. That life is given to us and he takes on our sin and dies in our place. And now in the truest sense, when we believe in him, this God has come and he has given us his works so that we can now truly stop earning and striving and laboring and we can rest from our works because one has come to accomplish it for us. It's like the old hymn, Rock of Ages. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal nor respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. But thou must save, and thou alone. There is no amount of labor that our hands can do that can save us from ourselves. But now there was this one who has come that has offered us rest. That said, if you believe in me, then you can truly find salvation. You don't have to try to earn it. You don't have to try to work towards it. And friends, this is not only true for when we're first saved, but even in our Christian life. We have to continually remind ourselves of this because our default, our kind of knee-jerk response is to want to try to earn. I think part of that comes from the human condition. I think part of it as well in the culture that we live in. Right? Pull up your bootstraps, work as hard as you can, you can get whatever you want. Friends, that message doesn't work in, in Christianity. In fact, it's the opposite of it. And we feel this every single day. We can even see it in how we respond to whenever we do fall, right? There, there's a mentality, I know, that I have to work through this. And I feel like, okay, I've done some good things all in a row. I've read my Bible now four days in a row. I woke up, I've been, I've been doing great. I've got my coffee, I'm ready to go. Okay, things have been going good. Oh man, I fall once again. And in that moment, I feel like I've lost everything that I've built up and I've got to start over. And I've got to kind of clean myself up before I can come back to God. Friends, that's a good diagnostic to how well we understand this. It's a good diagnostic to how well we truly understand the gospel. How do you respond when you mess up? Do you run to God or do you run away from him? Thinking that you've got to kind of get your life back together before coming back to him. And what Jesus is saying here and what the entire Sabbath has been pointing towards is that no, you don't have to work yourself up that even when you fall, you can run to him because of the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. We can now boldly approach the throne of grace, it says in Hebrews. We don't have to fear judgment or condemnation because Christ has taken it all for us. And so how do you respond when you fall? So Jesus, in this sense, the entire Sabbath was pointing towards him and he is the true and better Sabbath the one in which finally now we can come and say we don't have to work anymore. We can rest in him. He is our Sabbath. But the Jewish leaders were so wrapped up with Sabbath regulations that they were unable to see the true Sabbath standing right in front of them. So my hope for us as a church is that we'll be able to see so clearly who this real Jesus is and what he offers to anyone who believes in him, who has faith. 
He seeks the individual. He comes to seek out us on our level. He offers grace and healing to anyone who believes in him. He didn't come to earth with a list. He came to earth with a cross. And he came to offer grace, radical and free. And it kind of makes us uncomfortable, right? Grace kind of unsettles us and makes us uncomfortable. Because it feels like, no, no, we're kind of turning upside down. But that's that, that Jewish mindset that's beginning to seep back into us. But may we let that same radical grace begin to get so deep into our hearts that it begins to overflow into every arena of our lives. And may we hear and obey this simple invitation from our true Sabbath, Jesus Christ, to come. All who labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. His burden is easy, and his yoke is light. Come, for he is gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to save us from ourselves and to offer us a true and better rest from our works, not just for a day, but for eternity. God, help us to truly believe this radical offer of grace in our lives and to rest in it. Thank you for the hope that you give us as well. We'll not only find rest in you, but we will find true and complete healing in you. God, we praise you for the power you have over the curse of sin. You say a word and your creation has to obey. A lifetime of brokenness was not enough to stop you. You are the true light and have shone in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome you. Would you shine in our hearts today? We pray this in Christ's name, amen.